G'day everyone, Lockie Mansell here. Welcome to another episode of Checkered Flag Chat. This week's guest is someone who taught me most of what I know about motorsport media. Gerald McDornan was the media manager for Holden Motorsport over a decade and his experience in motorsport, journalism, public relations and commentary stretches back to the early 1990s. Gerald has some fascinating stories and behind the scenes insights and in part one of the podcasts we talk about one of his great loves, drag racing. He also tells us the story of the time he dressed up as Holden's mascot, Rory the Lion, at Melbourne Zoo in the lion enclosure. I won't spoil how that story ended. So, let's get into it. Our Checkered Flag chat with Gerald McDornan. G'day Gerald, welcome to the podcast. Now, one of the things that you always taught me when I was working for you is that PR is not all about you, it's about the people that you're promoting and representing. But today... It is all about you because we're going to talk about you and your background in motorsport and how you've got into it and uh, what you've achieved over the course of the years. But uh, So it's going to be a quick podcast. <laughs> I don't think so. I really don't think so. I, I reckon that there's um, – we could probably go on for a few hours, actually. it's. I think it'll be a challenge to try and keep it succinct more than anything. But your first involvement – in motorsport, it wasn't actually in the media side of things, wasn't it? It was your first automotive role was in sales for cars. Yeah, uh, Lockie, um, thanks for the introduction. Um, yeah, it was. I, I grew up in the with my dad in the car industry. He was a uh, a car salesman and a manager and a and a dealer himself, and. Um, Grew up love, loving cars, um, you know, that was the late 60s, early 70s, I'm in my mid-50s now, and uh, the muscle car era, and of course we, you know, my dad worked at some of the biggest car dealerships in Australia, in Melbourne, at uh, Kevin Dennis, and, uh, one of the big Holden dealers, and my uncle worked at Southern Motors, which was uh, Bob Jane, and worked for Bill Jane. Um, so I had a great introduction to the automotive industry and and uh, it was only natural when I left school my first job was to wash cars uh, my dad got sick of me sitting on my bum at home on the dole for uh, six months and said come and wash cars and then I progressed into sales You mentioned there that your dad was working for a Holden dealership, so Holden as a manufacturer was obviously very much a part of your early life as well. Do you have any memories from back then of the types of Holdens that you were around? Well, Lockie, he wasn't just a Holden dealer, but um, he was offered the Holden dealership in Wodonga before Scotty Taylor, who actually raced at Bathurst, took it. Um, but he also worked at uh, Ford dealerships and, and some Toyota dealerships, uh, but the you know Kevin Dennis was a massive massive operation in the late sixties early seventies in Melbourne they they sold a huge amount of cars at a time where the industry was unregulated so you know they didn't have to prepare cars much the you know one salesman had the job of taking the number plates off and and belting them flat and another one had the job of painting them black and the other one had the job of putting the white lettering back on them you know that was about as good as they did and someone else vacuumed the car and someone else washed them um they sold a huge amount of cars but uh yeah dad in his role he loved driving v8s he loved driving statesman's or fair lanes depending on what dealership he was at 
and uh, probably the the most memorable car. Well, there's a few memorable ones, but the the one that I never forget is is the LJ Tirana V8 prototype in pink, which he bought from Holden. Um, in 1973 and I remember the day that that came home we lived in Whedon Drive in Vermont and uh, I, I, I remember that car sitting in the driveway and um, uh, I believe Gene Cook who later went on to race um, sports sedans I think didn't he Lockie and, and certainly Oscar or NASCAR and uh, he bought that I, I understand uh, but that was a very famous car Wow, that's uh, that's really really cool because at the time, obviously the the LJ Tirana model that was best recognised for its success on the racetrack was the XU1, which was the six cylinder version. The V8 version, I think it was going to be called the XU2, wasn't it? But it never actually reached mass production. Yeah, never. The supercar scare of '73 happened, and. Uh uh, that's the time that my dad bought that car from at at one of the the auctions I suppose they had in those days. I I can't tell you how he actually bought it, but um, he certainly bought it off Holden and uh, brought it home. But yeah, it was um, you know it was going to be a very special car. It was I do remember going for the drive in it the night that he brought it home. And it was very fast. Probably good they didn't make them. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a lot of people that would have hurt themselves if those cars had gone into mass production and maybe it was not such a bad thing that that supercar scare happened and a few of those high-performance cars got killed off. But speaking of that, what were your early memories of the motorsport scene? Because this is going back to an era where the manufacturers had to make a certain number of cars and they had to be homologated before they could actually go racing. Um, back in those days, did they have to build certain numbers? I'm not sure, but I, I look. I remember as a little kid watching Bathurst and uh, you know Bill Brown's roll across the fence at the top of uh, the top of the mountain in the GTHO. Uh, what was that? 1971. He had a, a big crash in '70 as well. I remember, you know, black and white television in those days. I, I vividly remember in '71 when the Phase Three GTHOs came out and they had the shaker through the bonnet and uh, being, you know, my dad was into drag racing as well as what I was uh, as a little kid, you follow what your dad, and he kept telling me about, look at this, you know, the shaker through the bonnet like it's like it's got a blow or like a funny car has. And um, uh, so I vividly remember the GDHO Falcons, particularly the Phase 3s, and uh, and the LJ XU1 Tiranas were at that time probably my favourite car. And uh, Brock's Bathurst win in '72, um, you know, became a fan straight away. So that was the circuit racing side of things. But your real passion was cars that went very fast in a straight line, drag racing. So where did the whole drag racing interest uh, get formed for you? Um, my dad was a fan. He used to read the American magazines that would arrive in Australia after about six months uh, when they were released in the US, a Hot Rod magazine uh, particularly. And uh, he became a fan. And so they started racing at Calder Park in 1968 or 69, 68. Um, and uh, we used to go out there when I was a very little kid and watch them and you know, he worked at one dealership um, over the other side of town 
at the time. Can't remember the name of it, but there was um, an FC Holden there that raced called Commotion, um, which was Ian Russell. Um, F, it was a, I think it was orange from memory. Um, you know, so we used to go out to the drags and and look at that. And there was a guy by the name of um, Bob Brown or Bill Brown that had a, a tea bucket altered, a Holden six cylinder powered tea bucket altered called It's Illegal or It's Legal. Sorry, It's Legal. And uh, my dad had a driver that up the back straight at one of the drag race meetings. And, you know, we were fans from then. We used to see some of the great cars at the time, the Monaro funny cars of um, of the Shaker and the Spoiler, so Martin Miles and Wildman Shaker, and uh, the Spoiler as well. Some of the legends of the sport, Jim Walton's hard-goer, Double A fuel altered and uh, Ian Splat's bounty hunter and um, uh, Parotta and Caruana's sat- satisfaction Cortina and the big O Larry Ormsby the the uh, the breaker three you know uh, just uh, legends and uh, so we used to go and see those and um, 1972 Adelaide International Raceway opened up and my dad flew my brother and and myself across there uh, for the opening event and when they brought out the the Winds Courage of Australia rocket car, Bill Fredericks and Vic Wilson, and also the uh, Fullerton and Doheny Trojan Horse Funny Car, which was a Ford Mustang, and at the time that they were the reigning NHRA World Champions. And uh, in those days, you only had to win the one race to win the World Championship, which was the finals. And they had just won it at uh, Ontario, um, and uh, they'd sent their older car to Australia and they raced at Adelaide and that was my first time I ever saw a nitro funny car and uh, they, they just, you know, just grabbed you by the balls, Lockie. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the way, just listening to you talk about it now, it's obviously clear that it had quite an impact on you as a young kid and, I mean, for those champions from over in the US to come out to Australia, that that obviously would have been a pretty big deal at the time. Can you remember the sensation of watching a Nitro funny car for the first time? Oh, look, they they were wild in those days. I mean, they're fast and noisy and incredible machines nowadays, but in those days they were still trying to work them out and and rather rudimentary vehicles. Uh, They like to catch on fire, but yeah, I I remember the noise and shaking for the first time and then seeing this uh, funny car with the body off it uncloaked in the pits afterwards and um, the thing about drag racing was that you could get up close to the cars and you could meet the drivers and that's something which still hasn't gone away and and uh, it, it was just, uh, you know, it, it's left, here we are nearly 50 years later and I, I still think about it, still gives me goosebumps and then the, what, the Courage of Australia rocket car. And when I talk rockets, Lachlan, I, I mean a rocket, not a jet, a rocket. And, you know, <laughs> they, they, I mean, they're banned nowadays, but they would sit there on the start line, they'd push them into the staging beams, and they would put enough fuel in them to get, you know, partway down the track because they'd be going so fast, and they're noiseless until the moment they hit the ignition switch and they sort of give a couple of little puffs and then all of a sudden they explode and, 
you know, at, at those, I think in Australia, he ran 5.30s, which nowadays you go, okay, well, we've seen alcohol funny cars run that quick. But in those days where, you know, a, a really quick car would run 12 seconds, um, you know, to see a car run 5.33s, it was uh, something incredible. So fast-forwarding back to when you left school and you were starting to work in the, the automotive industry in car sales, at what point did you decide, hmm, I can actually make a living out of this drag racing thing. I can go and combine my passion with my professional vocation. Uh, well, I never thought about it professionally, actually, until I got married uh, to Michelle and, and all of a sudden had kids around, and that was in 2005 um, when I met Michelle. Uh, so but going back before that, you, yeah, you had but, started to do some media stuff, hadn't you, within the drag look, racing? I, scene. Yeah, look, the, the the way I got involved on a professional level, um, well, I started going to the you know, I would always go to the races, whether it be the touring cars or the drags or whatever, and I'd sit on the hill and I was a great fan and I'd read every magazine 500 times and I'd watch everything on, uh, you know, every bit of television that I could, even with, a, and I was involved in sales, uh, but it restricted everything. Uh, and I never thought of it as a career, but I was sort of bumming around a little bit in uh, at the end of 1989, uh, early 1990, and a mate of mine said, uh, look, I'm going to America, I've just bought a drag car. Uh, out of Seattle, I'm going to America to put it in a container. Do you want to come? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Why not? And and I was married at the time, and I said to my wife at the time, uh, "Listen, I'm going to America." And she said, "Well, okay. Well, I don't mind." Um, and I said to Paul DeNickel, "When are we going?" And he said, "Well, I'm going tomorrow." I said, "Well, shit. I haven't got one, a ticket, or two, a passport." And it was Australia Day weekend. And uh, he was going the next day, so um, the only thing I could do, uh, he was going on the Saturday, he thought I'd just buy a ticket and jump on a plane with a passport, Uh, and it was Australia Day long weekend, so I had to wait until the Tuesday, so I booked a ticket for the Wednesday, and on the Tuesday morning I, I went into town, I went to the passport office, I applied for a passport, the guy said, we'll send it to you in three weeks, and I said, well, I need it tomorrow or today, because I'm going to America tomorrow. And he looked at me rather strange. I said, well, here's my ticket. And uh, so then I took that, and I had to get round to the American consulate, because in those days you needed a um, a visa. So I had to go around to the American consulate, and again, they were, we'll, we'll send it to you. I said, look, I'm going on the plane tomorrow. And uh, by, I think it was about 10.30 in the morning, I was driving back out of town towards home, with a passport and a visa, and the next morning I was on the plane to America, and a couple of days later I went to the um, Chief Auto Parts Winter Nationals at Pomona, uh, so this is 1990, and uh, when I came back from there, Lockie, I, um, Steve Betts, who was then the manager of Calder Park, had been their commentator as well, and he was talking to Paul DeNickel, and he said, you know, uh, with my new role as the manager of the venue, I, I don't have time to commentate. So if you know anyone that knows anything about drag racing, um, I'd like to talk to them if they can talk. And uh, Paul gave him my number, and on the 23rd of February, about 8.30 in the morning, 1990, on a Friday, he rang me up, woke me up, 
and uh, and said, um, hey, Gerald, I've just spoken to Paul DeNickel. He's told me that you love drag racing. You know a lot about it. We've got a street meeting tonight. Do you want to come out and commentate? And uh, it all started from there. I went to the street meeting on the Friday night. Then on the Saturday night, it was uh, a national open event, but it was the Funny Car Nationals. And the Australian Nationals that year, or at that time, they used to run them on a rotation basis around Australia. State, you know, each state would have their turn, which wasn't really a smart thing. And uh, Perth were running the Nationals over at, not the Perth Motorplex, it was at um, the old Mandurah track, and uh, Ravenswood, and uh, they wouldn't run the funny cars. So Calder Park said, well, we'll, we'll run the, the Nationals for the funny car. Andrew agreed. And uh, I did such a good job at the, apparently, at the street meeting the night before that I got the call up for the Nationals the next night and uh, worked alongside Colin Russell, um, a lovely, lovely man and one of the legends of Australian motorsport, a former mechanic of Lot 6 Marnie's Road at Ford Motorsport, and the former crew chief for the big O, Larry Ormsby, and uh, I uh, started getting paid to go to the drag races from there on. So, and then it turned into NASCAR and uh, you know touring cars and started writing articles and all of that sort of stuff. So obviously, you really loved the the commentary side of things, and you were able to to use that as a springboard into some other media work. But I want to have a chat about. Projects that you were involved in would have been the early to the mid 90s where you set up a drag racing news hotline. So, this is obviously in the era pre internet. So, what uh, gave you the idea to come up with a hotline where people could ring a phone number to find out what the drag racing results were? Well, actually, I started a, a, a magazine up as well, so called Drag Racing Review. And I did it as a part of that. Um, it was sort of I set the magazine up in rival as a rival to Dragster Australia, which uh, was the um, the standard and the bible, and uh, run by David Cook and, and done very well. But the the hotline cookie used to have one, and I thought, well, you're getting a bit of a name, having a chat myself. I might as well do it too. And it was double o double five numbers in those days, and. Um, I would get faxes from the US every uh, every Monday or Tuesday on the results over there in the US, and then I started on a, on a service called CompuServe. You could get the results live, and uh, and of course I'd be in touch with everyone around Australia, so I could get the Australian results. So I used to cobble it all together and and uh, record a. Um, piece online or on the phone every every Monday or Tuesday and uh, oh, bloody good things in those days Lachlan you could earn some money the magazine didn't do me too good but the uh, the double o double fives were great <laughs> <laughs> looking back to that year or so obviously you're involved in commentary you're running your own magazine you've got the hotline happening as well what did that era teach you about motorsport as a business? Um, how to make a small fortune out of motor racing is to start with a big one. Um, <laughs> that was probably the best lesson and I've been learning it ever since. Um, yeah, look, I, you know, passion, passion uh, takes you far. 
but you still got to have your wits about you and uh, understand the politics of things. I, you know, and sometimes the passion can overrule the business sense as well. And uh, uh, look, I love being involved. Um, I love being involved with at top levels with guys. I'm not the boardroom type myself. You know, uh, that people know me. I'm I'm a knockabout guy. You know, I'll drop the f bomb every second word. Um, uh, when I got out of the car industry or selling cars, um, you know, I decided that the suit and tie wasn't for me. And, um, you know, so motor racing needs those sort of people. Um, but I'm a damn good soldier in the background. And uh, um, I, I think passion helps a lot. And you've got to keep learning. And you never stop learning. That's that's the whole thing. And you've got to talk to the right people. And you've got to take advice on board and listen a lot. And, um you know, Howard Marsden once said to me, we're at um, Queensland Raceway and talking about things and knowing his connection with Colin Russell, who I'd mentioned earlier, and, you know, Howard Howard said, look, and Howard knew my love for drag racing and involvement. He said, look, people discard drag races, but he said in the, uh, it was the late 60s or early 70s, you know, Goodyear um, with with racing and racing tyres they learnt a lot out of drag racing through you know sidewall movements and how to expand tyres and you never stop learning and you always have to look outside the square box uh, you know outside the square you've got to look for new ideas to keep advancing and I think we sort of did that all I've done that tried to do that all the way through my career sometimes you copy people sometimes you you know take some ideas and try and run with them and um, but never stop learning Mm. So the the drag racing scene was kicking along quite well in the early to the mid nineties, but then huge. a bit of a not kicking yeah, along, it was, huge. It was <laughs> massive. Yeah, yeah. Look, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I, there's a there's a dragster magazine or newspaper at the time in early nineteen ninety where I wrote a letter to the editor and said. Congratulations to Ravenswood Raceway and the people involved with that for running a terrific event in the Nationals. But, you know, they had 175 entries at the Nationals and and I think only 30 of them were from interstate that, you know, that made the trip over to the West. And while it was a wonderful event, it really wasn't representative of what a National event should be. And they needed to put the Nationals in one spot. And they did that. 92, the Nationals came to Calder. And it was awarded the event on a permanent basis from there on, from 93 on, on a five-by-five-year uh, deal. And that, along with just the way things, the, the regularity of it, and Sydney came back on uh, with Eastern Creek Raceway, and Winfield got involved. Uh, they'd always been involved with Jim Reed, but they got involved in back in the sport. And what Calder did building, Steve Betts did building a calendar there and linking it with Adelaide Raceway, and Perth were doing their thing, and Willowbank, you know, was maturing as a racetrack. It opened in 85, and all of a sudden you had these five venues around Australia that started hitting it. And, you know, mate, in, in 1994, more than one million people went to drag races around Australia. It was the biggest sport, and touring cars was on its had been on its knees um, with the end of the Group A era. '93, it started to you know come back with the V8s, but drag racing was huge. So we outrated the um, 
the touring cars on television on the same day when we put the Nationals on one year. Wow. We, we, we kind of tend to forget that now, don't we? Just how massive it was here in Australia at that stage. And from my perspective, I was probably too young at that stage to really appreciate or, or understand or pay any attention to it. But um, Well, the, the, high, the highest crowd for the Nationals one year was um, the you know, claimed crowd was 93,000 over three days. Uh, with a with a race day crowd of fifty five thousand, I think that was in ninety five, which was probably the best drag racing event ever in Australia. Yeah, I mean by the measure of any sporting event, that's an impressive figure to get to that sort of number. So, um, I suppose what why did drag racing from those lofty heights then start to decline in the late nineties? Um, it it well, it, it, look, there was a management change at Calder. Steve Betts got pushed out, unfortunately, so that uh, created a bit of a bit of a drama there. And what went on at Calder Park, and then in uh, the end of two thousand, Bob Jane decided that he didn't want to be involved with Andrew anymore. And uh, that what that did, uh, and then there was the dramas with Eastern Creek Raceway as well. They were having a lot of dramas by running a drag strip up the main straight when the, uh, the the circuit racing cars came down the main straight and into that turn number one. And there was always arguments over the preparation of the racetrack. So the way that the sport had built up, look, for anything to be successful in Australia, you need good presence in Sydney and Melbourne, the two biggest cities. And uh, so that's why it started to fall over. Bob Jane, you know, and Andrew split in Melbourne and Adelaide. And then the ARDC came in and started having arguments with Andrew and drag races over Sydney and then they stopped drag racing there as well and all of a sudden the sport was back on its knees again. And, um, you know, what Sydney proved and what Calder proved is that for a sport to be successful, uh, it needs its own venues. And over in Perth, Ravenswood was closing down so the Myosevich family had the Perth Motorplex built at Quinana which is a um, a wonderful venue. But it took drag racing another oh, six, five or six years, four years to get another venue in, um, in Sydney when Jim Reed and David Cook were finally successful with um, uh, Sydney International Dragway uh, and, mm-hmm. the, and the sport kicked up there. But in Melbourne and Adelaide, you know, we've, we've had now... Uh, what's this? Twenty years, twenty years now of uh, mucking around, and um, until they have their own venues in those states, uh, in cities, uh, the sport will still suffer. Yeah, it's since those halcyon days of the early and mid nineteen nineties, it's never really recovered, has it? No, not since probably ninety eight, ninety nine. Uh, no, it, look. I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. I, in the uh, in the late two thousands and the early two tens, it, it was really starting to kick along with the Andrew Pro series. They were doing a terrific job with the television. The management of the tracks were getting back together with Andrew, and but then there was a change of management in Andra, which brought a lot of conflict into the sport and brought a lot of division, and. Uh, poor management 
and uh, that ended up in a fight in 2015. And and again, it it, it all it all fell over um, in mid 2011. Um, and really, yeah, it's it's stumbled since 2000, and uh, it started to get up off its knees, you know, in the late 2000s. But then got back to its knees in 2011, and really hasn't kicked along since. There's been look, there's still great drag races, the Winter Nationals and the New Year series, and you know, Sydney have started putting on some reasonable events as well. But as a collective, nah, it's, it's it's a bits of sport, unfortunately. We'll come back to the drag racing thing a bit later, but let's talk about the next phase of your career, which took you into the circuit racing world on a more permanent basis. And in particular, uh, your role with one of the prominent motorsport publications of the time, which was Motorsport News. How did you first get tied up with them? Uh, well, I, uh, gee, my name was in the first episode or first issue of Motorsport News. Um, Tony Glynn, uh, one of the partners in the magazine, and Bruce Williams, I knew quite well, and uh, Phil Brannigan. Uh, he was oh, he he wasn't working there full time to start with. I think it was about a year in, but no, um, but was a good contributor, and I knew Phil, and I knew Tony, and I knew Bruce Williams, and um, so I was contributing to them as well as I'd been contributing to Auto Action. Um, and uh, in 95, after doing nothing for a little while, I um, well, they offered me a job as helping sell ads, and I was still contributing to uh, the drag racing and um, NASCAR pages, and uh, then... Then I, um, yeah, they put me on full time in, I think, June 96 and uh, just became more and more involved in supercars. Just, you know, I mean, the, the people in the motorsport industry have have uh, influences and their tentacles, you know, reach into all areas and it's just a natural progression. So it was, it was terrific. I mean, you know, we used to have the drivers come into the office or the manager, Jeff Greck, used to come into Motorsport News. I remember him a few times. And Greg Murphy used to come in. And Paul Dumbrell. Now, there's, <laughs> there's a guy. Used to, uh, as a 14 or 15-year-old, used to drive into the office and bring us lunch and lollies and stuff like that rather than being at school or having a licence. <laughs> you know, um, he was a bit of a tearaway kid, but, gee, he's a smart businessman. Um, it just, yeah, and... We, Got to know them, Stephen Richards, who I met via NASCAR and Oscar, and uh, you know he won the Formula Ford champ. We just, you just, so it was just progression through, and from selling ads, um, I became the ad manager, but then uh, moved into being. I, I really wanted to be more on an editorial side of things, and um, we had a change there that David Hassel, after so many years, decided to move on, and so. Phil moved up to being the editor of the magazine, Phil Brannigan, and I moved into being assistant editor, and we got a new ad manager, and yeah, it was just just there. And I was at uh, Motorsport News for five and a half, six years full time, which was great. It was great fun. We we you know we put out some fantastic magazines. Um, very involved in the Craig Lowndes moves to Ford deal. That was you know came at an interesting time where I'd already agreed to move into the PR with Tim Pemberton uh, Plastic at Pemberton Publicity Services was going to be the Holden PR agency or what was the PR agency for Holden. I'd agreed to a job there but had to um, keep mum on 
we knew what was going on behind the scenes with Lowndes and Ford because uh, we we were oh gee, I'd been to Gibson Motorsport and taken photos of Fred standing between two engines and you know we had all the inside word before the announcement. Um, so it was Phil, myself, and, and Aaron and Chris Lambden, you know, and uh, yeah, some really good times. You know, Mark Webber when he was a, an unknown used to come into the office and then. You know, when he went on the Formula Ford Festival, he was in there having lunch and Phil and I can... Oh, I won't go into it. We, you know, had some great stories with Mark and Chris Lambden used to go and uh, was there when he drove an F1 car for the first time and then when he... That was um, with the Arrows and then um, he was invited over when he ran the Benetton as well and topped the Formula 1 test in, I think it was Barcelona, wasn't it? Um, so, uh, yeah, terrific times. And while drag racing might have been in decline at that stage, that was the the era, wasn't it, where touring cars was really on the rise and with the rebranding to V8 supercars in 1997 and, um, yeah, some of the, those big personalities that were around the sport at that stage, like Craig Lowndes and Greg Murphy and Mark Scaife, on the Holden side, and then you had Glenn Seaton and Stephen and Dick Johnson were still very much involved on the Ford side at that stage as well. Um, it was a very healthy era for V8 supercars. Oh, absolutely. And, and look, by this stage, Lockie, you, you know, you're into it and you're sort of working along and earning your living in racing. And, you know, so, gee, I remember I went, I was actually Motorsport News' representative at the press conference in Double Bay in Sydney when the announcement about V8 supercars was happening. Um, I was up going up there for a drag race, funnily enough, at Eastern Creek, and uh, and then they called the press conference, so I got the phone call, quick, you know, it's going to happen, can you go to the press conference? And I sat next to Peter McKay. Um, you know, so that was a historic moment in Australian motorsport. I remember it, you know, and people were shocked. Here's this Tony Cochran explaining what was going to happen, and he'd done a deal with Channel 10 to put... Uh, V8 supercars on Channel 10 and people couldn't get their their minds around the fact that here was Tony Cochran sitting here saying this is what we're running this is happening and, and the question was well, but Bathurst well if if they're not happy with this we'll run our own Bathurst that don't worry there will be a V8 supercar Bathurst so you know and obviously the, the split, split there happened, the Super Tour thing happened. But to sit there and uh, to witness that um, was, was, you know, great to be a part of that history. It was just terrific. And But you could see this industry, you know. I mean, what was it? Uh, you know, one of the rounds, was it in Tasmania or somewhere, there only 11 cars had turned up in Group A for a round of the Australian Touring Car Championship. And, and you know, it really gone to a low ebb and here all of a sudden this V8 formula had been bubbling along for a couple of years and the teams then recognise, and this is this is a lesson for other motorsports, Lockie, because the teams recognised that they were the show but they weren't the management, right? Mm. And this is where other motorsports get it wrong. They think that they're the show and they should rule what happens but they have no idea while some people are very good in business at making the money to go racing, they don't know how to run racing. 
Tony Cochran had no idea about motorsport, and Mark Scaife was um, very involved in in getting um, Cochran in, and so was Neil Crompton. They recognised, and and Larry Perkins said it recently. We we put race cars together. We didn't put events together. And they got this guy who grabbed the sport by the scruff of the neck without knowing what was going on with the sport, and he and he pulled it into professionalism. And all of a sudden, you can see that people could create careers out of it, and teams expanded, and employment happened, and and engineering happened, and opportunities arose. You know, and and uh, it 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 was a Wonderful era. I mean, you know, everyone's had a bit part in it. You know, mine's minute, and I, you know, and I've made a living out of it, and I've only had a very minute part of it. But to be involved, and not that you agreed with Cochrane all the time, because he can be a polarising figure, and you know, he's got a massive ego. But geez, you cannot knock the bloke for the success and where he took the sport. And to be a part of that, I'll forever be thankful to uh, to him for what he did. I, you know, and people there are people out there to criticise, and they never get everything right. That's for sure. But you cannot criticise where the sport went, how much money some people made from it, or and or. The enjoyment that we've had and the opportunities that we've had, and uh, I've got a lot, lot to be. Th- you know, I'm not well off for anything. You know, I'm just a normal person, but boy, I've had a lot of fun, and uh, you know, I've been able to pay my electricity bill and my mortgage for many years, doing something you that I me. loved. Yeah, you and me both, Gerald, and and lots of other people, and. Just on the Cochrane point, there's no question that he knew how to get stuff done, and he, yeah, and he knew how to get the right things done. Looking at it, you know, it's again, and this comes back to when I was working with you, and one of the things that you always used to say to me is that it's no good having tunnel vision, being fixated just on motorsport and on car racing. You have to look at the bigger picture. You have to look at society as a whole to understand where the opportunities are and what people are interested in. And I think that that's something that Tony Cochran brought was that big picture vision that was able to really invigorate the sport and, and drive it to the levels that it reached. Oh, spot on. Um, and they're wise words that I must have said to you then, Lachlan. But it's it's right. When you're writing a press release, don't write it for yourself. Write it for the people that don't understand the sport. Um, you know, and Cochrane, here he was. This is a bloke who sat out the, the you know, the in the foyer of Frank Sinatra's office and, and wouldn't go away to make sure he got him to come to Australia for a concert at uh, whatever that joint was in Queensland, um, Sanctuary Cove, to open it up. Um, here's a guy that had, you know, vision and, and can create an event and, um, um, yeah, gee, it, it, it created opportunities and so many people have been employed because of it and um, they've got a lot to be thankful for. And I, I look, I certainly am. And uh, and as I said, not that you agreed with everything that he did and some of the things you just shook your head at and couldn't believe. And, you know, I know from on when we're on the Holden side of things, there was arguments over safety cars, uh, how he wanted Holden to pay for safety cars plus provide cars. You know, like, I mean, the bloke was commercial. Um, 
Whereas Holden and Ford have been giving them cars for years for nothing and all of a sudden they wanted a big check. Well, then, you know, some other manufacturer comes in and gives them a big check to be a safety car. You, you know, and you'd sort of, there'd be a bit of tension in around those sorts of things and that's fine. That's just a bit of business. And, um, but, you know, gee, he, he, he led it well. He led it exceptionally well and um, we've all got a lot to be thankful for. So from Motorsport News, you jumped across the divide that so many other people have jumped across over the years and you went from being a journalist to a PR representative working for Tim Pemberton or Plastic as he was affectionately known in what was the PR agency for Holden Motorsport. Um, it was it was an interesting year, wasn't it? Because at that stage you had HRT that were having a lot of success with Mark Scape winning championships and Bathursts and races here, there and everywhere. But there was some background politics as well, particularly towards the end of 2002 with the collapse of the Walkinshaw Empire overseas and then Mark Scape purchasing HRT early in 2003. What are some of your memories of that era? Uh, Firstly, it was um, Jeff Harris, who had been the PR manager, or was the PR manager for um, the Australian Grand Prix. He'd been a journalist at the Herald Sun for many years, and he and I had a a very good relationship um, because he used to write a lot on drag racing. Over the years, we were great mates, and... um, he knew that uh, one of the guys that was working for Plastic on the, Kame, uh, the Kmart account, um, which at the time was Gibson Motorsport, was leaving. Um, Chris Ord, The Ordinary, and um, um, Jeffrey said to Plastic, hey, why don't you give McDonald a call? And he knows what a story is. So I went and met Plastic at the Albert Park Hotel. We had a beer, and I said, well, you know, if there's something to move into, I've been at Motorsport News, you know, a fair while now, and I know what's going on. I know how to create a story. If you know, if you've got an opportunity, I'd love to love to be involved. And as I said earlier, uh, we yeah, we agreed to the job, and um, um, then there was a few months in between the agreement and me actually moving across, and it was all the lounge uh, going to forward stuff. So I had to keep mum on that. Um, and couldn't tell uh, plastic anything that I knew. Um, so that was that was interesting. I think at the time he respected when I when the announcement was made and he, he rang me and asked me if I knew and I said I did and I told him when I knew from. I think he respected the fact that I didn't divulge the details earlier and that was something that was very important because you know working with Holden or Ford or whoever, you know, there's a lot of pre-planning, a lot of advanced stuff, and, and you can't leak any of that stuff out. And I think he appreciated that I could keep my trap shut when I needed to. Um, but, you know, Plastic uh, is an, a wonderful guy, absolute legend. He was Brock's mate and uh, uh, a very smart man and a good bloke. And uh, unfortunately, I don't get to speak with him nowadays, Um but he, he, he taught me a lot. He, he was very kind to me. He could be a bit dour and sour sometimes and give you a couple of good belts around the head. Um, 
uh, but he was terrific to work for, a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, we got involved in, obviously, the Walkinshaw deal falling over and uh, Kmart Racing being sold to the Kellys and... Um, well, the franchises and, and then the scafe deal happening. There's a lot of uncertainty around there, you know, and Holden trying to protect its position and its assets, which was the Holden Racing Team. And uh, um, a guy by the name of Roland Dane wanting to buy the Holden Racing Team and the head of Vauxhall, Kevin Whale, and Aussie ringing Holden up and saying, listen, sell it to this bloke, he will win your races and it didn't happen and that guy then going off and buying a Ford team and giving us hell for years um, yeah it was very interesting times and again you know very historic times you know 01 at Bathurst you know Scaife winning uh, with Tony Longhurst uh, they had um, that was the year they had uh, a bit of cardboard in the front splitter as well they weren't sure if the car was going to get to the finish um, getting the band back together the next year with Jim Richards and the Blues Brothers PR and um, you know, Scaife and Jimmy winning again that year and a lot of races being won. You know, the rise of Ford with Ambrose coming along, uh, Murph and Todd Kelly working with those guys and then Rick and it's just a, a wonderful year and, and good guys to work with too. And I was, you know, while I, I did a lot with HRT for Plastic, I, my my main priority was the Kmart racing team with Murph and first Todd Kelly, then Rick Kelly. And, um, you know, so that's what I was charged with and anything else that John Stevenson wanted me to do as well as boss of uh, Holden Motorsport at the time. So on that Kmart racing account, one of the memories that I had from that era, keeping in mind that back then I'm a, what, a 14 or a 15-year-old kid who was really just uh, a fan of V8 supercars at that stage. But in 2002, there was the infamous fuel spill in pit lane for the Greg Murphy and the Todd Kelly Commodore, which subsequently Murph copped a five-minute stop-go penalty and the images of him getting out of the car, storming to the back of the garage, jumping into the portaloo and uh, and slamming the door shut um, are some of the most memorable images from uh, from Bathurst of that era. But while, then, while screaming five to, fucking minutes. Huh? Five <laughs> minutes. Five fucking minutes. I, I always... I actually, I had a bet with one of the mates about um, if this would be the first podcast that would have to have the explicit tag put on it, and there we go, it is now, so thank you for that. <laughs> you could go your hardest now because the, uh, the explicit tag's going to have to be used. But um, the next year, so 2003... There was an activation where Murph got wheeled into pit lane in a portaloo. Uh, can you claim responsibility for that particular activation? Oh yes, I can. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, no, that was a uh, actually it was a, with with Murph. Murph uh, and I were sitting at Plastic's office one day just talking about stuff. He said, "Oh, we should have a dunny on the grid." I said, "No, nah, that won't fly." But I tell you what, will a dunny in pit lane for uh, Wednesday media day? That'll kill him. Don't worry about it. We'll get it out of the way, get it done, happening, the whole lot. And uh, then you can just move on with the racing. And what was really funny was that at, even up to that point after two and a half years, um, the team manager, Rob Crawford, and I had had, you know, 
Rob's a, a great bloke, but gee, if he doesn't like you, he doesn't like you. And uh, it always been a bit tense with us, you know, and uh, what was really funny was that after Bathurst and all of the success, we were, at a, we were having a ride day up at Winton and uh, he and I, and I had a couple of mates going for rides and uh, he and I were... Um, uh, we had dinner at the pub which was very rare for us to have dinner together and m- with my mates here and we actually got on the juice a bit and uh, he, he he hooked into me about the, the toilet on on the Wednesday because he wasn't happy at all and uh, and I said hey and, and probably because I'd had about 50 beers by this stage I go I don't tell you how to run the race team don't tell me how to do the PR and he said, well, what do you mean by that? And I said, well, I know why we lost Bathurst the year before. And I told him the reason why. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, yeah, you're, you're bloody right, you know. And and from that moment on, we've been good mates, really good mates. And he's a terrific teammate, very, very tough, very straight to the point. And if you if you think you had to put the explicit on this podcast, talk to, the, talk to Rob and then you'll put it on twice um but you know i mean he he ran a fantastic team which didn't have the budget of the holden racing team but ran fantastic team and uh he appreciated it. look we went to bathurst that year to win the race had a chance in 01 with todd and uh murph um and then the rains happened as they all went into the chase i think it was was it larry or russell leading and todd was in second they both speared off at the chase um, we had a we had a good chance to win that year. We ended up third, um, and uh, then in 02, of course, the car had a lot of pace. But it was early in the race that the the drama happened, um, and and obviously the car was let down, and the car let out of pit lane, dragging the, the fuel churn or the fuel uh, fuel lines off, um, and getting the five minute penalty. So they went to Bathurst in 03, ready to win, and. You know, Eric Pender and uh, Shiggy Engine and that engine was built early in the year. It was being put aside. Robert and Shiggy had put the engine aside out of the way. Um, it was, uh, yeah, they went there to win. And uh, what a wonderful, wonderful memory that was. And uh, look, 01 and 02 were terrific being with Holden up there. But 03 was one of those years with the lap of the gods and... I think there was just the one session that the car didn't lead and it led, um, you know, topped the timesheets and uh, we led 120 of the 161 laps and it was just, uh, we're never going to be beaten that day at all. No one was going to get close and, um, yeah, boy, that was was good. And it's great, you know, we, we had fun on the Wednesday with the, the, the dunny on the wheels with the Rory of the Lions holding their noses as we wheeled it down pit lane and um, I wasn't allowed to put a holding sticker on there though. John Stevenson said no. Uh, it had K Martin Castrol signage on it and it was a brand new dunny too, uh, Lachlan. Brand spanking new. It was delivered in plastic even. Had the plastic wrapper around it. The, the toilet company did that for us. And here's an unknown deal. Murray Anderson, the builder of world championship winning door slammers um, and Victor Bray's cars and everything, he built the base for it and, and mounted the hubs so that we could put the Commodore alloy wheels on the dunny. And we lifted the dunny up into the chassis of it. Didn't have any steering, so we had to sort of turn it, you know, by dragging the wheels around. But 
Murph sat, sat in it with a couple of rolls of toilet paper and it was in it was in every paper in Australia. It was on the, every 6pm news that night. Everyone laughed about it. But once that was done, that was it. And uh, the rest of the week we were there to race. And that, that I always think is the important thing about when you go up there for um, uh, that sort of stuff is uh, get your PR shit out of the way early, try and own the press beforehand um, and then let the team... And those that uh, the guys that tune the engines and turn the steering wheels, and tweak the knobs, let them do their work from Thursday through to Sunday night, and then uh, hopefully you've got plenty to run with from Sunday night on. Yeah, good good lessons, and I remember again the time that I was working for you that that was always one of the. The big challenges was to manage the demands of media with ensuring that the racing drivers and all of the members of the race team didn't have too many disruptions on race weekends, which we'll we'll discuss that in a bit more detail a bit later. But before we do, you you touched there on Rory, which was the Holden Lion mascot. Yeah. And (laughs) I believe that uh, that might have actually been Gerald McDornan on several occasions. Uh, Just... Uh, three times, Lachlan. Three, three times. times. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah, bit of a sad story that. Um, yeah, the first, the first time I had to, I had to wear it uh, as penance. Well, the first two times, I wore, I wore the suit as uh, penance. Actually, the first. Uh, what, what did you, what did you do wrong? Well, plastic had dragged me along to the John Harvey tribute night that was put on at Crown Casino. Terrific night, paying tribute to Slug and his wonderful uh, uh, achievements throughout his career. And it was, it was great to see him honoured recently in the was it the um, New Year's honours. Um, and um, uh, we went to that at Crown Casino. Um, but Jason Bright and I decided to have a bit of a night out, and um, we stayed out a fair bit. And I ended up going home. Um, I got home about seven o'clock the next morning. And it's the first and only day in my life that I've ever not gone to work the next day due to a hangover. Uh, because I'm never, <laughs> I've never been a through the week drinker, and uh, I, I, I was asleep. And plastic rang me up. I answered the phone, and uh, I was on the couch. And he said, "Well, I guess you're not coming into work, are you?" I said, "Well, geez, I don't know. What time is it?" And he said, "Plastic said it's four thirty. I suppose I'm not. And, uh, <laughs> anyway, so he said, right, McDornan, I've got something for you to do on Monday. So I had to wear it as penance. Um, uh, I did it as photo, well, three times actually. I did it as a photo shoot at uh, Coventry Studios. That was just mucking around. And then uh, Holden had decided to... Um, sponsor the lion enclosure at the Werribee Zoo and as a part of that and the Werribee Zoo has a big glass wall so you know and they have a jeep sort of sticking half half and half each side of the glass wall and they try and get the lions to get up on top of it so but before that had actually been finished they put a glass wall in the lions enclosure at the Melbourne Zoo so I had to dress up as the lion and put my head next to the gla- very small glass panel inserted in the wire, of which they then put wood around, 
and uh, they were going to try and get a line to come up to the glass and talk to Rory. And uh, uh, they hadn't fed them for two days because that's what they do when they want them to do things. They don't feed them for a day or two and then put the meat where they want them to be so that they get the reaction. And uh, anyway, the, the, I'd, I'd had the, the body on without the head and all, when I put the head on, <laughs> the lions have gone berserk. They are running at the glass, and and I've, so I've had to walk up and down alongside the cage without the glass, and they're, they're running at the, the cage, and then when I put my head down at the glass, they're running at the glass, smacking it with their hands, um, and going like roaring and growling, and 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 where the glass was because it was only small, they had wood panel like um, um, plywood, just covering the bit so. So that the you know the claws couldn't get the suit, and I I, I said fuck that many times, Lachlan. That uh, unfortunately they couldn't use the audio on the vision <laughs> of the lions going berserk. <laughs> so um, and 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 people said, well, what you what you swear for? I said, if you've got a fucking lion running at the cage and smacking the cage and trying to kill you, which they were. I mean, they went as soon as I put the lion's head on, they went berserk. Absolutely apeshit, and uh, yeah, the audio was unusable. So that was that was the other. Oh, and then another uh, sand down. Then not long after, I had to wear it. When Jason Ackermanis was there, I don't know why, but I did remember telling some kid to rack off because he was pulling on the tail of it. So that wasn't wasn't good PR, I don't think. But you got to, you know, when they walk up and punch you in the guts and then pull the tail and try and be smart to you, you got to. Let them know that they're little kids. Um, <laughs> wasn't you, yeah, was that, it? A... Wasn't you? No, no. Are you no. sure? Can you imagine? Can Can you imagine me doing that, Gerald? Yes, I can, Lachlan. <laughs> Probably explain if I gave you the belt why why you are like you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. Um, one was, of the other. It was good fun though. It was good fun. One of the other uh, things that was good fun in that era of you working for Plastic was the Bathurst 24-hour races with the Monaros in 2002 and 2003. What do you remember about those races? Uh, those races were so long, they felt like they went all day and all night, actually. Um, <laughs> Funny, that. Yeah. Uh, no, what wonderful events to be a part of they were terrific races um sadly only the two were run um but they were they were brilliant races to be a part of to see the development of the monaro um to come together from the dream that uh, john stevenson had he did the deal with ross palmer and steve betts who employed me steve was uh, at pro car at the time uh they agreed to uh the, the 427 Monaro to see it get built to be there when it ran for the first time at Calder Park um, um, it, it uh, very special project to be involved in for them to win the first time uh, with um, Richo and Garth and Nathan and Cam Conville and then to come back the second year with the uh, the two cars and then we had um, Murph Toddler and uh, Bridie along with uh, Peter Brock and, the, you know, we ran 05 on the red car and we finished 1-2 that year. It was uh, very special and the, the 
you know, Gary Rogers Motorsport built those cars for Holden. They were terrific. They did a sensational job. Gary's team was terrific to work with. Um, yeah, just wonderful experiences. And anyone that was involved in, in that project, you know, it, it uh, had, had a great time. And um, never forget it. Sort of uh, gets me a bit emotional and goosebumps like lap of the gods still. Um, but, uh, yeah, wonderful, wonderful period. And uh, those Monaros going up that mountain just with the, you know, the growl up the mountain and across the top and down the mountain. And they did it, you know, they were designed to win that race. And, um, yeah, wow. But, I mean, and the last seven minutes of the second one where uh, Gary got on the radio and said to Garth and Murph... Okay, seven minutes to go, race to the finish. And, and Garth was about 10 cars behind Murph in the line at that stage under safety car, and the safety car went off, and Murph saying, what, what, what? And by that stage, they'd got to turn one, and Garth sitting right up his back bumper, and they went hell for leather for the last seven laps. And um, if you see that bit of vision online, it is terrific motor racing, those two guys. There was no team orders. The 05 car wasn't ordered to win. Those guys race to the chequered flag, and it's a terrific piece. And to be there with Brock when he won, uh, and to celebrate and have a beer with him that night, and he had a beer, he had a wine, um, yeah, a very special moment. We'll resume our chequered flag chat with Gerald McDornan in part two. It's one that's definitely worth downloading, and not just because he opens up on an altercation with the certain Aussie motorsport legend at a Texas bar in 2013. He also has plenty of tales from his time as Holden Motorsports Media Manager and running his communications business for Racity Media. That's all for you to look forward to in part two. I'm Lockie Mansell. Thanks for listening.